Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Things We Find Interesting. Uh, we've got a return repeat customer again. Uh, Tom is back on the podcast. Uh, if you remember, Tom and Dan joined us a, a few weeks ago, and we talked about the ideals, the ideal traits of being a doctor. Um, and Tom mentioned to me afterwards that he thinks there's some far more interesting things we could go into in, in a more specialist part of medicine, which is the area he works at the moment. Um, and we're going to look into anaesthetics. Uh, title of the podcast is going to be The Jedi of the Hospital. A mystery to me, but I th- I'm sure Tom's going to explain to me uh, why there's some Jedi mind tricks going on there or perhaps some, uh, some super athleticism coming on from it, the- it sounds a bit more cringe when you say it out loud <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll have to change it now too late i've thanks for having me back brother no worries mate so if you don't know uh, me and tom used to actually go to school together um that's how we've got this this random connection with these all these doctor fellows um so yeah you're getting some some og content from some uh some old school uh east anglian school books <laughs> So, Andy, I've, you know, memories of you from school, uh, all good, obviously, all good. Uh, some that stick in my head for some reason, you're uh, um, always, always a fairly good rugby player. And actually, I think we were mostly really? in the same rugby think teams. What was that, sorry? We were mostly in the same teams for, for rugby, weren't the B, we? The B team. <laughs> of course, the B team, the seconds, the thirds. But you were always there. Uh, tallest one on the team always um, and absolutely fantastic in the lineouts. But my God, if the ball ever went up in the air, uh, if it was going anywhere near you, oh man, my heart just sank. <laughs> oh, you know what? That was, uh, My heart sank as well. It's one of those <laughs> things that I, I, you look back at, at being like a kid and you're obviously never willing to actually like admit, I'm just really bad at this. Everybody's going to keep up the pretense, haven't they? And I, I knew, that, well, not, not even deep down, quite openly, that I was just terrible at catching. I don't know why. I just couldn't catch for <laughs> the life of me. Um, you, had, you had enough physical prowess and enough aggression just to get by. Yeah. I think I let you in for that reason. I, I think that was it. No skill, but like, this <laughs> weird like yeah quite aggressive young man but uh didn't quite translate over to hockey that well though did it yeah exactly when it gets more hand-eye coordination you you can't just brutally go and try and tackle someone no i remember as you said the old the old kickoff at the beginning of the rugby match (laughs) i I actually love playing rugby but i feared that moment every time that would happen i'm like oh here comes the humiliation of me not being able to catch it i think i don't think it was till upper six that i finally said to the 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 school teacher is the manager. I was like, can we just put something somewhere else on the pitch? So like, I have to catch it. I was like, yeah, why not? And then- I'll just stand on the sidelines just for the, the bits where the ball goes in the air. The ball goes in the air. Oh God, yeah. It's it's, it's amazing how much you, you, you'd you play that moment to yourself as like a young teenager before the match and start to fear it. What was your, what was your moment of that that you dreaded at school? That was definitely one of mine, that the kickoff from rugby. Um, I don't know really. I mean- I guess I played, I, jo- I joined in year seven um, and I, I hadn't gone to a um, the same school as most people joining from year seven and I'd never played cricket before uh, and I just remember getting all these pads and stuff on and then just having some kids hurl cricket balls at me and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, yeah, because it's not like a conventional way you'd think to like bat something, is it? Like there's a kind of like almost stick your stick in the way. Oh, stick! It's not even a stick, is it? Oh, stick your bat in the way. <laughs> so I was used to this in playing rounders. Yeah. Um, and so there I am, just trying to absolutely wing at the ball and and just getting shouted at basically. And uh, no, it wasn't my forte, cricket. I just, yeah, it, it, it's one of those weird like um, you just sort of expected to pick it up, aren't you? You know. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's um. Yeah, it's it's funny to look look, look back at those times and the things that, that stress you out as a kid. And uh, <laughs> you're like, why didn't I just ask someone to like explain it to me? Yeah. Best times of my life, though. I think What's I had a really time? good time at school. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it was, I think it was a happy time. Lots of lots of lots of funny moments. Uh, but you don't realise when you're there. You don't realise that you're around all your mates. Mm. Uh, you know, you get breaks. Um, you get to chill out. Just have like absolute banter all the time. You know, people are always looking forward to the next thing, aren't they? Oh, yeah, you know, I want to get to sit form, I want to get to uni, I want to get to a job. And then you, you end up here and it's like, oh, man, this is a, not quite what I expected. Yeah, it's like a trickle fit. You're getting extra freedoms and then you become a proper adult and then you get all the freedoms and then it's like, oh, <laughs> here yeah, come all the, the responsibilities as well. <laughs> 
all the responsibilities. But it's interesting that thing about like, uh, you know, I think sometimes what makes a good like school life and things like that for people is that social side of it. Even if you're doing some, some, you know, not particularly fun activities, you've always got that social side. You're always surrounded by people your own age. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I speak to a lot of my friends um, and, and they, they very much talk about people they work with as colleagues and it's kind of like, yeah, we've got a working relationship. And that's why I think I certainly feel blessed having been in the military is that kind of slightly uh, boyish humor. Uh, there's lots of people of a similar age, of similar interests, and there's all there's constant kind of jokes almost. So uh, it sounds like an extension of uni. Yeah, honestly, I, I you know, I, I worked in some jobs that haven't, haven't been great, but they've always been made good by the people. And there's always that kind of underlying bit of humor, which just makes me, I think as humans, we love to work like that. I mean, I don't know what medicine's like. Is there much of that kind of, I, I, I don't want to call it laddish banter, but I think that's probably a, an easy to understand kind of. Yeah, scenario. it's. Um, I mean, if it's there, it's heavily diluted because, really? yeah, I mean, yes, you're going in with, um, you know, there are other junior doctors around our age, but you're also working, you know, very, very closely with nurses um, who, you know, can be up often in their 40s 50s 60s just a completely different stage of their life and so yeah it's not the same as as uni and school does that lead to any sort of friction sometimes if you've got a young doctor coming in who sort of essentially has a bit of an authority position by assume they're made allowed to make a call on things that perhaps uh, you know some nursing staff wouldn't be yet the nursing staff are much older more experienced do you, do you see much friction or is the system yeah. been in place for so long that like nobody really questions it I know people question it and uh, friction is a light way to put it, you know, people get angry and I can see why as nurses, because they are experts in their field. They might have been working in this particular area or this particular ward for 10 or 20 years. And you get some young upstart doctor who, who thinks they know it all. Um, and, and yeah, there's this quite weird power paradigm where, Technically, the doctor is the one making the decisions, but uh, you know, only a foolish young doctor would would go against the advice of a a senior nurse. Is medical school quite good for teaching that sort of approach of like, yes, you might technically be in charge, but you know, listen to experience and kind of look to look to bring people into the decision making. Yeah, I think it is pretty good at it. It is pretty good, and and you get a lot of advice when you start off and. You know the advice it generally goes along the lines of you know trust your nurses ask them for advice just constantly um uh, and yeah just be totally lost without them really yeah because i think i just think of my parallels and actually it'd be very similar to your brother at the moment who's at an earlier stage of his military career than than i than i am um or i was um and constantly you get told at the kind of you know the officer academy um, at Sandhurst is like listen to your you know your sergeant is your because you, you'll get paired up essentially and I suppose in a similar manner you'll have a young officer who I suppose is kind of like the young doctor technically in charge of that body of, of troops but then they've got a sergeant who's maybe been in for sort of 12-15 years um, who I suppose is maybe that senior kind of kind of nursing figure and and that relationship being right which leans heavily on the officer being actually quite in a way deferential to the to the sergeant um, yeah, um okay so interesting parallels there actually between the military and and, and medicine i am um, i'd love to see what both could learn from each other i think they're both kind of quite big hierarchies quite big organizations that have got a real human factor as well as a technical side to them but um you know let, let's move on to our topic of today of t talking about medicine a specific type of medicine anesthetics Tom, give us like an absolute idiot's guide to the main themes within anaesthetics. Mm, oh, so thank you so much for having me on, Andy, because I just think anaesthesia is the most amazing thing in the world. Uh, I'm super passionate about it. I love it. And I practice it every day and I feel so lucky that I do it as a job because um, I absolutely love it. So for people that might not know what uh, anesthetics is or what an anaesthetist does. Uh, we are the doctors who put you to sleep for surgery, keep you asleep for your surgery, and then hopefully kind of wake you up uh, afterwards, try and keep your pain under control because obviously surgery is associated with a heck of a lot of pain. Um, 
uh, and, and we are experts in that field. I think the anaesthetists, um, well, so uh, anaesthetists are generally the doctors that will work in the intensive care units. We tend to have a fairly good understanding of uh, how the human body works, what all the drugs do to the body. Um, we're, we're, we're really good at looking after super sick patients. Um, and yeah, to kind of, to sum it all up, a, a big part of our job is, is to put tubes in other tubes. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, we, we take our breathing tube and we put it in your breathing tube uh, and, and help you breathe through that. Or I take my, um, my IV cannula, which is like a little plastic tube, which sits in the vein. Um, and I put that tube into your tube, which is your vein uh, and give you drugs through that. So uh, yeah, hopefully that kind of summarises it to summarises it to a certain extent. And it's quite a technical kind of field, like um, it's slightly longer training path line. I think we mentioned on the previous podcast compared to perhaps ones that people would be more familiar with, being a, being a GP, for example. Yeah, absolute minimum. We're talking five years at med school, two years as a foundation doctor, which is like a super junior doctor, and then seven years specialist training. Wow. Um, so yeah, you're looking to to kind of fully qualify in your in your mid thirties at the earliest, really. Uh, and can you explain to people where you sort of sit personally on that on that path line at the moment? Yeah. So I am um, a couple of years into that seven year specialist training program. Um, yeah. So kind of overall, I guess I'm over halfway but you know it's, they uh, still feels a way off to become to become a boss and lots of exam you said you've got an exam coming up on friday shape those since those school days indeed yeah so uh yeah last exams i did were back in med school and it was weird because at that time i had nothing else to do but revise for exams basically and, you know go to some lectures and seminars it's, it's a different experience now having to work a, a day job uh, and then, you know, find time to revise in the evenings and weekends. Uh, it feels a bit like doing unpaid work a lot of the time, to be honest. Does that mean that um, it's a sort of um, people are less doctors when they're making their decision about where they go into? Are they less clean to go into anaesthetics because they know it's going to be a, a tough, a, a tough pathway to get there? So it's renowned to be a really tough exam. Um, the, the amount of detail that some some of the questions go into, you know, I, I need to know about the, the, the physics of my anaesthetic machine. Uh, I need to know about the inner workings of a defibrillator. You know, if your heart stops and you, you put those pads on, I need to know how it all works. Um, yeah, so it's tough, but in saying that, you know, a lot of other specialties have got insanely hard exams as well. So, uh, I just don't know about them. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Um, so talk to me about like putting someone to sleep. Um, that sounds it it sounds like an easy thing and, and you know we, we've all grown up on cartoons and stuff and it's like oh thwack someone on the back of the head and they just magically fall asleep and that's a, a nice safe way to kind of get 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 around the baddie but actually you know you apply a bit of thought to that you're like oh no that's that's probably quite dangerous i could probably kill someone quite easily and to me like the threshold of putting someone safely asleep and killing someone as a layman seems like dangerously close uh, yeah, it, it's a, you find a, you find a nice little balance. So I love it how you talked about hitting someone on the head there, uh, because that is a, a very early recorded way of giving someone an anaesthetic or, or basically performing surgery. So most of the early surgeries were dental work, um, and there's some there's some reports of people just basically getting bashed on the head. Uh, other ways. Uh, early in the, the the very early days of kind of surgery and anaesthesia i don't know how much ufc you watch andy but uh you know you'll occasionally see people get choked out it is a way that you can give an anaesthetic obviously not one that we do nowadays um yeah because i'd imagine that's actually like a relatively you know you could you could have a kind of element of control like if you're bashing someone on the head that seems like uh oh there's all kinds of like where it's difficult to get that bash to the right place and it be sort of scientific and controlled and you get put too much or too little but i can imagine if you're actually res restricting someone's blood flow then you know there's a, there's a there's, that's a bit more of a step down the control path 
Uh, yeah, it's a small step in the right direction. I'll give you that. <laughs> but um, uh, still not something we do. Well, back in the, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of things like the Master and Commander Russell Crowe film um, mm. when they're amputating someone. What does he do there? Uh, so they're having like a sea battle or something. And this is what they're, this must be like the late 1700s, early 1800s. And, you know, there's shells, oh, splinters of wood and stuff. And somebody's, I don't know, had their leg really gruesomely damaged. And they're like, right, we've got to cut it off. Mm. And they just get them absolutely pissed, you know. And the guy's obviously still screaming, but um, they they don't go for the knockout. They just like get him get him really drunk. Yeah, a bit of alcohol and a, a stick to bite down on. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So alcohol, early anaesthetics, um, records of people using opium poppies for early anaesthetics. Uh, a lot of our modern anaesthetic drugs are kind of based on the the opium poppy and. That's where we get morphine, morphine from. Oh, and where, uh, when and then, did we in history start to see people like getting pro- kind of in a controlled way, sort of knocked out? Oh, so I think maybe getting a little bit more controlled, maybe in the kind of, oh, you can't quote me on these, but kind of late 1700s, early 1800s, when nitrous oxide uh, was kind of first discovered and first um, people could actually commercially make it. And I, uh, I think initially nitrous oxide wasn't, you know, it wasn't seen as an anaesthetic agent or anything. People used it for pleasure. And there was a traveling showman who went around in America and he would demonstrate this laughing gas to a group of people and and people would just basically have a good time on it like they would alcohol. Uh, But during one of these shows, uh, he, uh, the showman gave it to an audience member. The audience member, I think, injured themselves quite badly, kind of hit their knee and they were bleeding and was basically just completely oblivious to it. A dentist in the audience saw this and he made the connection between, okay, maybe I can use this gas to reduce the pain for my patients. Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, that's the, one of the earliest uh, uses of anesthetics using nitrous oxide. Coming a little bit further forward, uh, chloroform was invented and discovered and chloroform is, is that uh, you know that stuff you might have seen on the cartoons where people pour it onto a rag and then hold it over someone's mouth and it knocks them out. It happens in The Simpsons quite a lot, yeah. Definitely happens in The Simpsons. Um, uh, uh, and a famous example is that, of that is uh, a doctor used it for Queen Victoria to, to kind of facilitate her having the birth of one of her children. Oh, right. Um, because it wasn't sort of, um, you know, ladylike for Her Majesty to, to kind of scream and shout whilst having a, a child. I don't know. It's probably just because she could afford the best kind of care, isn't it? Okay. Oh, but I assume there's issues there. Like, um, I mean, I, I'm making a massive leap here, but the reason you uh, certain types of surgeries or treatments, you kind of want someone to be kind of conscious. And I'd imagine childbirth is one of those where you need the person to sort of to, to push. Yeah, for sure. Childbirth is insanely painful, uh, insanely painful, but um, you don't want to be asleep for it. Uh, Very occasionally, we do have to put people to sleep to deliver their babies um, if if we needed to to do a a C-section or cut the baby out. But our our high preference is um, to reduce the pain or completely get rid of it. And there's a couple of ways we can do that. You'll often see um people breathing in nitrous oxide or laughing gas on the maternity ward um but the when the way i get involved is uh the anaesthetist is the doctor that does the epidurals Mm. which um is putting a plastic tube into someone's back uh, quite near their spine uh, and basically infusing local anesthetics into their spine to reduce the pain sensations. So how do these, I mean, I don't know whether you're able to explain that. Like, how do the, does the actual mechanism of you're putting this liquid in near, um, you know, I, I assume when you're, when you're saying this local stuff, it's it's binding to something around the muscles or nerves rather than going to the brain or, or how, do the, how do these things actually work? Well, you're asking the right person, man, because I'm doing <laughs> my revision. <laughs> they block the sodium channels on the... Uh, uh on some on some nerve receptors basically and just they basically just stop nerve um stop nerves propagating pain uh and yeah you're right when you're doing it in the spine 
the the local anesthetic that you're putting in doesn't go up to the brain or anything but it hangs around in the in the spine and around the spine uh, and just blocks pain signals so, that, uh, so if, you're, if you're putting in a local anesthetic you're not going to put it into the blood flow i guess because then it would just get pumped around the body like yeah and go everywhere exactly. you're sort of putting yeah. it into like like muscle or something or so um with an epidural specifically we're putting it into something called the epidural space which is a space kind of around your spinal cord and then to kind of take it one further we can actually put um local anesthetics into into your actual spine uh where kind of the um the fluid that surrounds your brain and spine your csf where that is so i can put medications into that uh, and that can cause kind of a really dense block of pain so not like an epidural which would normally just kind of reduce pain i can put an injection in your in your back uh, and it will completely block the pain it will completely block the the movement in your legs um, and so we could and we do it we basically fix people's hips and people's knees and chop people's legs off under this thing called spinal anesthesia so person's awake but can't feel anything from you know maybe the belly button down or higher or lower depending on what you put into your spinal and how is it that they know where to like you know it seems to me you know sticking needles or something into your near your spine that just sounds inherently like a, a bad thing to do how do you sort of know where the right place to, to to put it in is it sort of by like making little measurements around people's where people's bones are or uh yeah basically so we, you know bodies are 99.99 times like the anatomy is very 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 similar between most people especially when you get down to kind of the bones and the nerves and stuff um and so i know that you know someone to, to access someone's spinal cord I'm going to have to go right in the midline and then yeah i basically just look at their back um i can feel the top of their hips uh, and i know that if i go from the top of the hips across to the middle of the back i know that i'm going to be in a safe place to uh, to do these injections so you're getting out like a measuring tape and like drawing like lines and doing like geometry and stuff to work out the point to to kind of line up or is it is it a bit more rough than that it's a little bit more rough, but I'm, I'm I'm using my hands. I'm feeling. I know I know the landmarks that I can feel. I know yeah. I can you know I can feel the the bony bits of your spine, um, and I know exactly where to where to put my my medications. And you know these landmarks are great and easy to feel when you've got young, fit, thin people. Those landmarks can become fairly difficult if if someone's got a um a good layer of fat on them oh so. god yeah i didn't even think about that yeah because actually that's just going to be well i suppose maybe not so on the spine because fat doesn't seem to like gather there but yeah on the hips, that goes on the spine andy does it there's a lot of fat yeah, over people's spine you spine. wouldn't believe I'm it feeling my own spine right now to see how much because I've, I've definitely put on some weight recently but my spine but you can feel those little bumps quite lean <laughs> you can feel those bumps in the middle of your back like yeah. low down and high up yeah and that they're, they're what i'm feeling for and i tell you yeah, so how do you deal with it if you've got uh, obviously you know it's inherent in that issue i know the nhs causes issues people being overweight for a lot of treatments but like how do you deal with that do you have to do some sort of like scans or do you just have to kind of make a best estimate so uh depends on the anaesthetist um as i say a lot of people will give it their best shot just to to, to find this space um you can put an ultrasound probe on someone's back and, and get a, a rough idea of of exactly where the midline is and what you know where you should be going and how deep you should be going um and as ultrasound becomes cheaper and uh kind of more portable more and more people are going to do that basically so yeah there are tricks of the trade i'm also curious you mentioned earlier about you're chopping someone's leg off i know mm. not the technical term but i'm going to use that and you're putting them under local anesthetic with this mm -hmm. epidural or the, the more advanced one that goes right into the spine. Yeah. Um, why are we not just knocking that person completely out? What's the sort of what's the, the thought there behind that? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, because, you know, for all, from my experience, being awake and having your leg chopped off uh, isn't particularly nice or... Yeah, yeah. Why would I want um, someone to... Yeah, just psychologically, that's not a nice thing to do. It's not. It's not. Um and I don't want to cause people harm or pain, but uh, for, for a good number of people, it's the safest way to do these operations. People talk about, oh, you know, just, just knock me out, doc. Um, 
you know, putting someone to sleep for an anaesthetic is uh, not as, as simple as, as a lot of people might think. Um, you know, we have to keep you in this level between being awake uh, and, you know, at the, at the very other extreme, essentially being dead. Um, and I've got to try and keep you in this, this fairly narrow uh, window where you're not aware and you're not aware of what's going on or, and you're, you're not going to move when the surgeon touches you. Um, but then also, if I give you too much of my medications, your blood pressure is going to drop to your boots uh, and your heart's going to stop. So it's that, that that's the that's the art of and the science, to be honest, of anesthesia, keeping you in that level where you're not awake, but you're not dead uh, and keeping it there. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so what are the different like kind of drugs that we're using? Are there any that people on the pod might have heard of that you're using? Let's say for this general anesthetic, where we're trying to get this balance between, you know, not feeling anything, not being able to move your muscles and not having your heart stop. What, what, what are some of the, the tools we've got at the trade? So uh, generally what we'll do is we will um, bring people into our anaesthetic room or our, our operating theatre, put one of these IV cannulas in. So we've got direct access to your vein uh, and give you a medication to put you to sleep. Some of the medications that we use, um, people might have heard of. So uh, one that I use pretty much every day is fentanyl. Uh, it's been fairly topical in the last few years because um, big problems with kind of fentanyl, um what well, people abusing it basically it's mainly in the us i think it's, it's yeah I've seen it, quite a few like there was vice documentaries a while ago and then it you know yeah i've heard it's sort of taken over i mean i may be wrong here but it's taking over heroin essentially as the kind of like class a painkilling sedative of choice is that is that is that right I, yeah i'll be honest i don't know much about the um the kind of illegal aspect of it but but what i do know is it's a, a fairly quick acting and extremely strong painkiller um, and it's just a nice way to get the anaesthetic started, basically. So what, why did fentanyl take over from? Because I, I know, well, I don't, I don't know from the military. They used to be given, you know, you get given little uh, shots, little things of um, of morphine. Um, mm. you know, if somebody's wounded in, in in combat, they get given these morphine things, and they've replaced that with fentanyl. I think they even replaced it. It was like on like a lolly, and you'd like put it under people's tongues. Ah, yeah, you, you got the fentanyl lozenges, have you? I think that was it, with the belief that like untrained, well, relatively less trained soldiers, it's it's safer rather than getting them injecting things into people. It's like any idiot can put something, put a lolly under someone's tongue. Yeah, and I think they replaced oh, I didn't those. That. Yeah. And, and, and the thoughts was it was very powerful, more powerful than the morphine. I don't know. Is that is that true? So uh, I guess in, it is more powerful. It's quicker acting. It's shorter acting. Um, you give someone a big slug of uh, morphine, uh, and essentially what you're talking about is probably giving it into the muscle. You can't then take that drug out. So, you know, these opiates are, they have quite a lot of side effects. And one of the main ones is respiratory depression. Uh, or, or in other words, they stop you breathing. So I guess with a fentanyl lollipop, um, you know, if you're not breathing, you're not going to be able to to kind of hold it and, and yeah, keep it yeah. in your mouth and suck it. So that sounds cool. Are there like counteractive drugs you could use? So if we've given someone accidentally, somebody's been given too much morphine, can we give them something that like, you know, brings them, brings them, wakes them up a little bit more? Yeah, you can. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite commonly used in A&E when you get people that have, that have come in and taken, you know, maybe a heroin overdose. Um, it's called naloxone. It, um, it's, uh, it's a pretty weird drug to use because you'll get this, uh, you'll get a person in who's absolutely conked out on their morphine or their heroin or whatever. Um, you give them a dose of this naloxone and they wake up quickly. Uh, and they are not in a happy mood uh, that you have <laughs> <laughs> that you have reversed their you know fifty pounds worth of heroin, um, uh, and the, and the, I guess the other thing about it is that you know it completely takes away all the effects of that heroin almost and more, so it causes them to be in this kind of quite quite a painful state. What, um, so what is it like? What is the mechanism that causes someone to be? sort of physically addicted you know rather maybe psychologically addicted to something like heroin or something what's going on there in their biology that um kind of causes those sorts of hmm. issues? I don't know exactly best guess would be 
you know, if you're chronically blocking some of these pain receptors, your body just acclimatizes to it. Um, and so then when you don't have them, uh, you end up in, you know, Everything feeling painful, shit. Yeah. Mm, interesting. That's yeah, not good. So we talk a bit about fentanyl. Yeah. Um, propofol next. Like a bit of propofol. Propofol, um, people might have heard of it. It was the drug that killed Michael Jackson. So uh, he was given it by his doctor. Um, and again, propofol is one of those drugs that can stop you breathing. Um, you know, no way would I be giving propofol to someone in their own home like Michael Jackson did. Yes, it's absolutely fantastic at getting you off to sleep, and that's why I use it. But um, yeah, crazy to think that he was taking it at home. Absolutely crazy. As in, you'd always want to take it when you've got like we've got a ventilator here. If if it goes badly, we can kind of take exactly. steps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my drug to get you off to sleep. So what would have happened there if we're talking about that? I mean, obviously we're making huge, huge, huge assumptions. But what could you postulate could happen that leads a doctor to um, prescribe that? Is that because the the normal sleeping pills sort of aren't working and they need something more severe to like have the same effect? I don't even know what was going through that guy's mind. To be perfectly honest, really? um, I mean, yeah, Michael Jackson was probably paying a shit ton of money. Um, uh, and I guess when you're paying a lot of money, you kind of get what you want. <laughs> uh, but yeah, who knows what was going through his mind. And another one you mentioned is um, the old, the classic known as the horse tranquilizer is, is ketamine. You've mentioned that to me a few times. Oh, yes. Love a bit of ketamine. Oh, stop telling people what we talk about <laughs> outside. <laughs> no, disclaimer, I've never actually used ketamine. Um uh, I've seen I've seen a few people use it recreationally, and it didn't look particularly fun, to be honest. Have you seen anyone use it? Uh, I'm I'm genuinely really uncool when it comes to drugs. Like I, I yeah, I I just I I don't really know many people who have. I haven't done anything myself, so mm-hmm. I, I, that's an honest answer. I'm I'm I, I yeah, I wish I, I I'd be interested to know what 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 this does to people though. But uh... well, I just you know when when I've seen people take take it take ketamine recreationally, it puts them in a bit of a K hole. People call it where just a bit what's it supposed to do to you what's like the what's the the positive side what are people looking for when they take this let me google it quickly what (laughs) what um you get hallucinations you get a kind of feeling of euphoria um but yeah from what i've seen it can just put people into this pretty nightmarish state maybe it's the quality of ketamine that they're getting and then what are you guys using it for in the hospital Oh, so so we use it in a couple of different ways. Um, the the nice way that I like using it is um, to put people to sleep, basically. And ketamine's got a few advantages over some of the other drugs that we use. In that, it doesn't really drop your blood pressure too much. So, if you've been in a car crash or something and you've lost a lot of blood, ketamine's quite nice for you because uh, it's going to keep you nice and nice and stable. Um, it does have some, and it and it does put you to sleep, or it puts you in this dissociative state, is what is what we call it, where you kind of your eyes will be open, but you know your eyes are glassed over. There's nothing going on. You won't remember things. Um, uh, and so yeah, you can use it as an induction agent like that to put people to sleep. Uh, I've used it before to like heavily sedate someone. So had a. A teenage boy brought into A and E by his dad, and and this kid had taken some kind of drug and just gone absolutely mental, um, and was you know just just not in a good place basically. And, and his dad brought him in, saying, you know, can you help? Uh, and this kid was you know trying to throw punches at people, writhing around, shouting, screaming, clear, almost just like in an absolute nightmare state. And so we used some, some ketamine into his, into his muscle uh, and it just basically calmed him down so we could actually get control of the situation, stop him throwing punches, basically. Oh, really? So it's almost like held as like an emergency, not restraint, but an emergency. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, a, like a poison dart, you know, kind of. You can throw it from across the room and get it in there and they'll just start calming down a bit. So what what drives you to use... So we've mentioned like a few different ones and I assume there's, there's, there's loads more out there. Why do you kind of use one or the other? And also like what sort of drives that? Do you have like a... 
do you have like a sort of set of tables where you put in your calculations almost of like this person is this age this weight you know they've got this thing wrong with them and it pumps out you must use this drug or is it, is it a bit more kind of is it less science a bit more art to it so that's what my seven years of anesthetics training is for basically it's trying to make those judgments um uh, and for every single drug that we used i've got a, a dose in my head <clears throat> so for example you know fentanyl to get someone off to sleep i might be using one to two <clears throat> one to two micrograms per kilogram uh, and i you know i can use that anywhere from a child up to a, a big fat obese person um same with propofol you know, one to three milligrams per kilogram and so for all of these drugs I've got it in my head how much I, I should be giving them and but the, yeah the kind of the art of anesthesia is is how much to give because poor Doris who's broken her hip and is having some hip surgery done really does not need much propofol to go off to sleep uh, and you can so easily just overdose her on propofol if you if you gave too much um, so to give you some numbers kind of propofol wise, you know, I might be using 50 milligrams of propofol to put her to sleep. You get a big rugby player in who's broken his shoulder or whatever. I'm using more like 400. An absolute unit from the school second, the, B, the school B team. So. Yeah. <laughs> like a second rower. Yeah. A second, second rower team. in the school B team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd, uh, you'd be getting a lot more than old Doris. What's it like double the amount, like 100 mils? Yeah, more, more? Like 300 400 yeah, really wow okay and so that, that's where the kind of that's that's the art of anesthesia knowing i should be taking more ibuprofen than than the the two recommended is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> i can't condone that i can't condone that um so there's just one more thing i wanted to um say about ketamine um uh, and it's somewhere else that people might have seen uh, it being used and Andy, do you remember the um, the time when a, a football team got stuck in a cave in Thailand? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't know what year it was. I'm thinking like 2016, oh, something like I reckon, that. I think that's a good. I reckon that's a good call. 2016. Come on, let's uh, let's use our old friend Google. Okay, and, you look uh, it up. I'm going to keep talking. Is it Thailand? Thailand, yeah. Thai, Thai cave hey. rescue. It was the kids, wasn't it? They're in there for like a month. <laughs> Yeah, Tham Luang Cave. Uh, oh, God, no, it wasn't 2016. It's 2018. Not that long ago. Oh, okay. Oh, fair enough. So uh, why on earth is ketamine relevant in this story? Well, 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 these kids are stuck down here. And it turns out that, you know, there was this very thin, narrow, long passageway between the outside world and the inside of the caves. And it took like insanely skilled divers to get through there. Uh, and I think uh, I think at least one rescuer actually died trying to get in and saving the, the kids. It was like a so they had this big problem. Yeah. yeah, they had this big problem with how are we going to get these kids out who have never dived before through this like extremely technical dive where, you know, they'll be in pitch dark um sub completely submerged in water uh, and basically the, the divers just did not think that they'd be able to get these kids out without them panicking i mean that sounds utterly terrifying you know being dragged through a cave underwater you know absolutely hours, uh in pitch black oh my god yeah and so uh one of the the um people that had come in to, to help rescue them was uh, an anaesthetist by trade. Um, he's an Australian anaesthetist, uh, and his plan was to use ketamine on these children. Um, uh, so, so to basically put them out or put them in this dissociative state, as we say, um, get the get the scuba gear on them and stuff, the mask and everything, uh, and just drag them out unconscious, basically. Um, and when I saw that. Uh, in a documentary, I was just like absolutely amazed by that because I practice anesthesia in such a way that like all my patients have got monitoring on the whole time that they're in with me. Um, and to think that that these kids were getting a kind of a dark style anesthetic uh, and then getting dragged through, yeah, uh, yeah. dragged through this underwater cave system, just like absolutely blew my mind. But uh, yeah, pretty mad stuff. I think all the children got out, didn't they? They did. All of them got out in the end. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's God. You know, there's some out the box thinking, and people actually making a call of like, okay, yeah, this isn't a normal practice, but actually, the alternative is is essentially a pretty probable death. Uh, yeah, and thinking about the human factors of that of that problem as well. Like, yeah, cool, we might have this sick plan that works really great in theory, but when we turn the human psychology onto it, and like how terrifying that would be. Uh, absolutely terrifying. Wow. And so this this anaesthetist, he was like you know it's it's so so bold to try and do this because you know we're, we're fairly safety orientated people uh, and just to, to to plan something like this one of the other aspects of it is that ketamine has the side effect of causing quite a lot of salivation if you give someone a big dose of ketamine they're just going to produce so much saliva and spit and, and so he was worried that they would basically drown in their own saliva and spit inside the mask oh. uh, and so he gave it a separate drug atropine to 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 dry the mouth out basically wow um, absolutely crazy stuff what well, are there any other sort of of some of these drugs talking about some kind of like side effects that need to be combated in in interesting ways i mean i would say basically every drug has a side effect um yeah i mean almost anything you can think of has got a side effect that basically well, most of the ones you can get over the counter don't have side effects in the doses that you're taking but even something like ibuprofen if you're taking that long term that's going to cause stomach ulcers um but yeah certainly things that things that we need to like rapidly um kind of reverse so you know things like propofol and, and fentanyl are going to drop your blood pressure pretty hard so i've always got some medications on standby to, to bring that blood pressure right up and mm. um, you know often using them keeping it in that, that good balance what's your thoughts on things like paracetamol and ibuprofen obviously real low level kind of like painkillers and and uh are they muscle relaxants as well or muscle um the uh, uh, not, <clears throat> not muscle relaxants but paracetamol as a painkiller yeah, is pretty fantastic really yeah. Is there much problem with people kind of too habitually taking these things? I remember sometimes people, like, I, I will take them on a rare occasion if the pain's really quite bad. I remember some people, it's like, oh, I've got a hangover, I'll pop a few, you know, mm. paracetamol or something. I, I always thought that was a bit cavalier. I don't know, what do you think? No, not cavalier, in my opinion. Um, I would always advocate for uh, a couple of paracetamol, obviously in the right dose and everything. Um yeah, minimal side not, not effects. Not a roid beast dose that I needed. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, probably wouldn't touch the sides of you, mate. <laughs> the B team second row, you couldn't catch, yeah. <laughs> uh, but actually on that, you know, people do accidentally take too much paracetamol sometimes. Um, and I have once seen a young girl with toothache take too much paracetamol, you know, not not knowing that she was taking too much, but just like, you know, taking a pill, a pill, a pill, you know, and took quite a lot over the course of a, a few days, uh, going to liver failure uh, and need a liver transplant. Oh my. I'm, what I'm reading at the moment is you come up with this, this magical conco concoction to get the person to have the effect they need for the surgery, knock them out. Is that, is that your job done then? Is it, you, you've, you've given them the, the uh, magic potion and you, and you piss off and, and, and job done. I walk away. I'm, I'm just going to get out my coffee. Yeah, no, I'm done. That's it. That's my job. Five minutes. I'm done. He's, no, he's <laughs> I jest. Uh, yeah, unfortunately it would be quite nice if it was like that, but you know, once you're, once you're under anesthesia, um, it is my job to keep you alive, uh, which involves you know doing stuff with the the ventilator the breathing machine um keeping your blood pressure in the right range keeping your heart rate in the right range you know believe it or not even when you're under anesthetic people can still feel pain um uh, oh, really? and so uh, how, yeah yeah so a bit more how does that manifest so um probably the first thing i'd see is um a jump in your heart rate so uh you know the surgeon starts cutting or touches a nerve whatever does something i can i can see that you're in pain from that um and while you're not technically kind of feeling it you're you know arguably you're still experiencing that pain it probably means that you're going to be in a lot of pain when you wake up and so i, I will during the operation try and treat that pain because also it's just not nice to have your heart racing at 140 beats per minute uh for an hour because you wake up and you'll just feel like absolutely knackered, like you've 
you've run a race. Um, so yeah, I'm keeping an eye on, uh, on whether or not I think you're in pain. Um, a lot of things that the surgeons are going to do are going to drop your blood pressure, raise your blood pressure to, to dangerous levels. Um, I need to, to keep you asleep, but not, you know, not too asleep. You know, occasionally people become slightly light on anesthesia. And so I'm kind of monitoring that constantly. Yeah, how, I want to know how often do people give me some rough, rough guesstimates? How often do people like wake up in the middle of surgery? Is that, is, that, so, is that an urban legend or does that actually happen? It's not an urban legend, Andy. It happens. It honestly does happen. And it is something that every anaesthetist is really scared of. Um, it is, you know, if someone, if someone just clearly kind of sits up during their surgery, yes, it's awful. And yes, it could cause some absolute damage. But, um, you know, it's quite quick and easy to, to quickly put them back under uh, you know, increase the amount of drugs that I'm giving to put you to sleep. And then, uh, you know, it's all good. And, you know, probably have a chat with the patient afterwards. What, what really worries us is if you are paralyzed, a lot of the drug, a lot of the surgeries require you to be completely paralyzed. So, you know, you can't move a single muscle. Um, but you know, those drugs don't keep you asleep. So there is a risk of uh, the sleeping drugs wearing off, but the paralysis drugs not wearing off. Um, and that's where you hear about those nightmare stories of people being aware during surgery. And I guess because they're paralyzed, some of those indicators that would tell you that they're now conscious or to an extent conscious have, have also gone inherently when, when because they can't move or anything. Can't so is it, quite, is it quite, is that where you're just going off heart rate and stuff, is it? Yeah, so so things that we would look for um, to kind of keep keep in mind about, um, you know, to make sure people aren't don't become aware during their surgery is, you know, your heart rate should go up if you're aware. You might you might get some tears come out your eyes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there are so many things that we do to try and stop this happening, and so I, I don't want to scare people and. Um, and, you know, we're, we're constantly monitoring the kind of amount of anesthetic gas that you're breathing out and breathing in, or we might be monitoring your brain waves to try and stop these things from happening. But you know, they they have happened in the past and they will happen in the future, unfortunately. I suppose there's that risk also if you've got a sadist on your hands and they're they're like enjoying themselves for the pain, you know. <laughs> like, this one wasn't in my calculations. I think even a sadist couldn't hack you know, having their stomach cut open. Oh God. Uh, Pretty nasty don't. stuff. No, it's, it's super rare. It's super rare, but it is one of those things which, you know, we're, I'm scared of happening and I really absolutely never want to happen. I mean, I don't know whether you're able to say like how, how often are we talking? Something like that happens. Like, I'll be honest. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but um, we're talking in the kind of, I don't know, 10,000, 50,000 range. Oh, right. really? 10,000, 150,000. It's, it's more common with kind of emergency surgery where you're trying to put someone to sleep really quickly. What is um, it? Someone's been like shot or stabbed or something? Is that like. Yeah, someone's been shot or stabbed, or the classic case is um, when you've got a, a pregnant woman and they need to get baby out like immediately. Um, and so you are like just being absolutely rapid with your anesthetic. Um, and unfortunately, there is a slightly higher incidence of awareness in those kind of situations. You know, it's still not it's still not common. It's not even uncommon. It's still very, very, very rare, but it does happen. Yeah, scary yeah. stuff. And are, are, is there much development going on in terms of like new methods to do this more efficiently, more safely? Um, and, and who is it that does these kind of if there are stuff like that, who is it that's studying new ways to to do anesthetics? Uh, so yeah, definitely. Anesthetists themselves are always kind of studying these kind of things. New drugs are coming out. We find different ways to do things. Um, in terms of safety, we it, we we've learned a lot from the aviation industry. Oh wow! And that sounds a bit weird. Um, and I, it's probably fairly similar in the army. And you know, how, how often do you guys use checklists and, and kind of? as a team did you did you did you ever use checklists to kind of make sure that 
we weren't yeah. missing anything. Oh, I think 100%, especially, you know, especially as a, a tool for stressful scenarios, you know, um, I think that's how the army, the army tries to train its people to, you know, you look at what the army does. Most of the time, it's actually very simple. Well, certainly the guys who are doing the, the, the real dangerous stuff, it's actually relatively simple. And the cl- there's a classic adage of like, I think it might be Klaus Fitz, the famous um, Prussian general who said, everything in war is easy, but doing the easy things is hard. And it's all about like, as soon as it actually gets stressful and people are being shot at, you know, they'll forget to do the simple thing. So the army loves a good little like mnemonic or checklist to mm. like make sure that people under stress don't kind of forget what they're doing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, we, we're heavy users of checklists and mnemonics and things like that. Um, yeah. And yeah, basically learn from the avia- aviation industry because, you know, they're, they're under quite a lot of pressure as well, trying to land a plane. Or... And a great way of like noting down information, I can imagine for them as well, where they've got like a headset on and they're hearing two different, vo- you know, maybe they're being spoken to by the tower in one ear, the pl- another plane by the other ear, mm. trying to fly the plane, actually having like a little form where you just have to, you know, like an idiot, fill in the boxes yeah and i suppose something where where the risk is unacceptable i'd imagine similar for you guys like why would you take the risk of having someone make their own notes when you could have a checklist and guarantee exactly really simple things like you know do i have my breathing tube available is there a spare one available you have to go through these checklists because yeah well we do it every day Uh, it's so easy just to miss one little thing and then you're you're up shit creek I think the brilliance as well of it in a, for a lot of organizations, because it can be very easy to poo-poo checklists. And I've seen it definitely places say like, oh, if we give people a checklist, they don't understand it from fundamental principles. Mm. And they're not thinking creatively. But I, Andy's got a bit of a theory that actually a checklist can unlock creativity, because I think you can actually take a lot of the work you're doing, essentially take it out of your mind, because it's now on mm. a list and I don't even have to think about it, which actually frees up my brain to think a bit more more creatively and think a bit more abstract. Uh, abstractly so yeah sure. i'm a massive fan of checklists for actually enabling creativity we think alike and i think i think there are a lot of common um yeah i think the army and the nhs are similar in a lot of ways and especially now the nhs kind of feels a little bit like a war zone in a and e sometimes um yeah so i think we can definitely learn a lot from each other is that the um uh, particularly with NHS at the moment, is that um, coming into the winter periods with more illness or? Yeah, it's effect? coming into the winter period. It's uh, there not being enough beds for patients. It's the nurses who are going to go on strike quite soon. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a chaotic time. Um, I think there's a decent chance junior doctors might strike in the near future. Um, and yeah, what, what happens feel... when those strikes happen? I mean, I, I assume do people kind of in the real serious emergency departments not strike, um, or how, how does it how does it kind of kind of work? Yeah, so it's, it's up to the it's up to the nurse. So you know, taking the nurses' strike as an example, it's kind of up to the nurses what they do. Um, and I think what they've said is that they will continue providing emergency care. So you know, you're not going to go into A and E. Or, or need intensive care and then not be a nurse. Um, it's Johnny but... the cleaner there with a, with a mop. And <laughs> <laughs> or even worse, you've got some junior doctor, don't know what they're doing, <laughs> trying to... i at school. Yeah. <laughs> There's blood everywhere. Well, there's certainly some I wouldn't trust. Um, but yeah, so you, I th- yeah, basically, yeah, they're, they're going to provide emergency care, but but not any kind of elective care. So if, you, if you've been waiting for your knee replacement, it ain't happening. and how will the nhs deal with that will they just have to pause everything essentially or are they going to try and bring in like contract workers or anything like that i I really don't know (laughs) don't know the nurses have never been on strike before so yeah kind of one of those like non-striking um unions um god that's that's a fascinating one and actually that'll be you know god what, what a stress on the on the hospital management from a kind of like logistics point of like i don't know how many people are going to turn up to work and i don't know where we're going to have the you know it's not even like i've got a guaranteed number this many people are going to leave on this day like i'm yeah. just going to lose some people you're probably going to have to form sort of all sorts of like ad hoc teams aren't you i guess to yeah i don't envisage yeah. hospital management that has to deal with this kind of stuff it is uh but then i also you know i don't envy the nurses how hard they work for the pay they get um yeah yeah what sort of pay is like a um i could probably look this up online but 
What are mm. we talking for a, a new nurse out of training? I don't even want to take guesses. Go on, look it up quickly. Come on, we'll look it up. Otherwise, we're going to be really ill-informed. Exactly. We'll be spouting rubbish. Band five, which is a starting nurse. Yeah, go on. You'll know what to type in. 27 grand. 27 grand, yeah. And that's after how many years is that of training? Um, so that is, a, I mean, it's a university degree now. It's a university degree. Uh, and the other thing about it is I think they used to... They used to get a nice NHS bursary. Yeah. So, you, you know, they'd kind of be getting paid or at least not paying for their um, their course. But now they're actually paying to do their nursing degree, being left with this big old student loan wow. um, and not getting paid well for it at the end. Jesus. And again, we're going to start sounding like the rest is politics, but Brexit taking away, I'd imagine, a lot of, a lot of staff. The NHS has got to be causing dramas yeah it's tough it's yeah. tough okay so rounding up you called this episode and you cringed after after you'd actually said it uh the jedi of the hospital but i've kept it in because because i'm a bastard uh, <laughs> what what sort of jedi skill sets are we are we talking about um that that, that you think encapsulates the uh the the anesthetic profession oh yeah it's a good question you put me under pressure i bloody love star wars <laughs> I just want to be. I just want to be as much like Obi Wan as possible. Yeah, well, that's uh, a because we've got different types of Jedi's, haven't we? We're going to go full geek here. You know, we've got the kind of like the the the, the warrior types like Mace Windu, <laughs> or we've got the more sort of pencil types like Master Yoda. You know, <laughs> which Jedi approach are you going to take? Uh, well, I mean, at the moment, I'm a Padawan. I'm a Padawan. Yeah. I'm I'm young Anakin. Um, you know, before we turn to the dark side, and I suppose in that way. We work in pairs. We work in pairs. Anesthetists always work in pairs. We don't always work in pairs, but certainly as a trainer, you're always paired up with a senior anesthetist slash Jedi um, who, who kind of watch you, mentor you. Uh, and so in that in that sense, we're a bit like Jedi. We, we stay calm. You like you never see- if, you, if you were like, I want to call you master and you call me Padawan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring it up. I'll bring it up. <laughs> I normally just call them boss. Um, Jedi's you never see you never see a flustered Jedi, do you? I'm trying to think of a flustered Jedi. Apart from maybe Anakin, actually, so maybe he was a bad yes. choice because he's quite emotional. But usually, it's yeah. that kind of like you know, um, what's the very the philosophy everybody loves at the moment? Stoicism. It's that kind of like stoic Jedi. Isn't yeah, it? but and but that kind of like emotional. Um, uh, you know, volatility with Anakin, that that wasn't Jedi-like, was it? And they didn't like that about him. Uh, and so anaesthetists always like to stay calm. Um, you know, we, we're mindful of our thoughts. Uh, Is that because, because that, um, in, in a sort of, str- uh, like, assume, you know, for most people, it's, it's advantageous to be calm. But for, for you guys, you're almost having to do little calculations and, and work things through very um, sort of scientifically. What yeah. everybody else might be doing hands-on things, you know, I don't know, putting on a tourniquet or quickly, I don't know, doing some sort of medical stuff. You, you're having to like just hang on, take a step back, and do the- I, I, I'd say it's more like ninety-five percent of our work is chilled out, um, uh, and you know, I'm watching my monitors, I'm acting on them, tiny little things, and everything's good and everything's calm. But then 5% of the time, you know, things are really kicking off. And if you start to lose your head, then uh, the whole team is going to lose their head. So, you know, you don't want to be panicking big time if you're trying to get someone to sleep for this C-section because the mother's going to realise that you're panicking, the midwives are going to realise and all hell just breaks loose. So stay calm. And then I guess the, the third thing that I would... I would say is we kind of tend to work in the background. People people tend to remember the names of their surgeons that operated on them. Uh, no one ever remembers the anaesthetist. We're in the background uh, and and just like the Jedi. The unsung heroes of the galaxy. Oh, brilliant. Um, right, well, a fascinating episode this time. I know I've learned loads and just found it genuinely interesting and good for us to catch up as well, Tom. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening to Things We Find Interesting. Hopefully Tom, Tom will come back soon. 
um for another pod uh, if you're enjoying the podcast so far you know give it a like give it a share more importantly we're still quite new um so yeah any any kind of share you can give with your friends and family is hugely hugely beneficial for us for growing and hopefully helps encouraging interesting people like tom to come on the podcast uh, again and again Thank you.